Welcome to BCG and Wits Business School's Conversations with South African Business Leaders podcast, where we talk to key business and thought leaders making waves in South Africa and across the African continent. Welcome to Backstage Pass. And welcome to Backstage Pass, brought to you by BCG and Wits Business School, where we're in conversation with South African and African business leaders. My name is Nozi Poshabalala, and it is an absolute pleasure to be your host today. The big invitation in our conversation today is to consider how we might break through the barrier of 20% representation of women in South African boardrooms. Now, to help me unpack that conversation a little bit closer, I am really happy to introduce our two guests today. we we'll start off with uh, Nolita Fakute. Uh, she is no stranger to South African boardrooms. She is chair of the management board of Anglo-American. She is the president of the Minerals Council of South Africa. She's a former executive director and vice president of strategy and sustainability at Sasol. I believe a position that you've held until 2016. She's held a range of other senior positions in retail and financial services and has served as a non-executive director in mining, manufacturing, retail, and currently serves on the JSC, Discovery Bank, and IWFSA boards. She was also the first woman president of the Black Management Forum and and excitedly today, because we're going to be tapping into her book as well, she is the author of Boardroom Dancing. Sitting close by is uh, Jacqueline Foster Mutungu. Uh, she is a partner at BCG in Johannesburg, where she has worked for the last eight years. We're going to be tapping into uh, Jackie's global experience, although we find her uh, in South Africa right now. She is a member of the Financial Institutions and People's Organization Practices at BCG. And these, of course, are practices which enable her to do most of her work locally in Johannesburg while spending time with her two kids aged seven and four. Prior to joining BCG, Jacqueline worked in the consumer food space, uh, covering brands across the U.S., South Africa, and Zambia, as well as in, in investment banking in the U.S. and the U.K. Ladies, allow me to say welcome, and thank you so much for joining us on a Backstage Pass. Thank you. Thank you. I want to start off with you, uh, Nolita, and I want to start off with your book. So you write a book called Boardroom Dancing. You position this book as a collection of your own experiences over three decades as a woman and a black woman in particular in South African boardrooms in the corporate space. And perhaps it's a, it's an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How would you briefly summarize the experience you are trying to capture in that book, especially your experience of being a woman in the boardroom? Well, Nozipo, the experiences that are documented in the book obviously I cover three decades. And for me, it was important to document in that sequence because I started working in 1990. I always say six months after Nelson Mandela came out of prison. So I have experienced corporate South Africa pre-1994, and I have been part of corporate South Africa post-1994. And now today, I'm in corporate South Africa. And for us, and when I'm saying for us, women of my generation, uh, that journey can really be documented in such a way that you talk about how you have seen corporate South Africa evolve over the years and in many ways reflect the macro 
of our society. So what you saw externally, you saw internally within corporate boardrooms. Right. And that journey has been very interesting to watch how it also evolves based on the politics of the day. So during Mandela's presidency, corporate South Africa would have a different posture and tone towards uh, engaging with black people, particularly women. And during President Mbeki's uh, tenure, it was completely different how women were engaged because, again, the tone at the top from the presidency was different. And then during Jacob's, President Jacob Zuma's term, it was also different. And now with Sir Ramaphosa, you are seeing a different kind of posture and engagement. Mm. So it's been quite an interesting journey. I think for myself, but I think for all of us as black people and women. You've highlighted a journey that you've said, depending on the tone of the top, we might have seen different textures and nuances. Are we making progress, though? So if you look at net-net in history, as you've laid it out, are we making forward progress or are you getting a sense of stagnation when it comes to the treatment and the experience of women in the boardroom in South Africa? It's really a checkered uh, history. Yeah. As, 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 as you can imagine, because again, the culture that you find in a boardroom and in a company is influenced by the tone at the top. So in a country where you see how women are visibly represented, either in government positions or in business as a, as a, as a whole, then you are sending a different message to how you deal with transformation and change. Mm. And, um, my net net, Depending on, on each era, I believe that we actually sadly have regressed in terms of where we are at when it's about numbers. You saw a lot of women come through, even though we're smaller in numbers, uh, in the middle, late 2000s. Yeah. Um, and then it just stalled. And when you look at that, you reflect and you realize that during that period, we even had now, out of the nine provinces, we had five women premiers and four male premiers. When that changed to a situation where you only had two female premiers, you saw that change and shift within the boardroom because, again, it seemed and it felt like the tone and the conversations were not about gender anymore, but more about other issues. And of course, your final chapter is uh, titled uh, Let's Talk. And that obviously indicates to us that the conversation is not done. There's much more work that still needs to be done. And as you speak about the regression, uh, we go to that place and we say, okay, we need to start thinking about how do we get that positive momentum back. And so, Jackie, I want to come to you um, and bring your voice into this conversation because even in the introduction, I said, we find you in Johannesburg, but I know that your experience extends the continent, different parts of the world. And I really want to get a sense from you whether there is a unique, experience for African women in the boardroom? Is there a nuance or are we just prefixing with geography unnecessarily? And as you respond to that question, perhaps you might speak to your own journey of becoming a partner at BCG. Was it any different to some of your global peers that you encountered around the world? When I think about my experience in Africa, having worked in you know Zambia, Ethiopia, uh, South Africa, um, I do see that Culture is something that you need to kind of get over that can be a hurdle uh, for women here. 
Uh, so if I, if I speak about a few examples, you know, when I was in Zambia living and working with my husband, we have similar qualifications, went to business school together, both working there. Um, when people would address us, they would address him in person and say, oh, d does your wife work, right? They're assuming that I'm, that I'm a housewife and, and I'm not, right? And also you can address the question to me. I'm standing right here, but that's just part of, you know, Zambian sort of patriarchal culture um, that, that's inherent in the way people interact. Um, other examples, um, there was a woman, a young woman on my team here in Johannesburg, uh, and we were consulting with uh, someone very senior at a client organization who was also a black woman, and the respect that um, that you know, successful black woman demanded from this younger black woman is, is all grounded in culture. Um, but it meant that, you know, the hurdles that she sort of had to jump through versus the males on her team that, that weren't, you know, held to that standard. It was just very different. And again, uh, represented a, a hurdle for her. Mm. Uh, maybe one other example is, you know, when I think about the boardroom and what makes people impactful in the boardroom is a, a way that they engage. It is looking people in the eye. It is giving them a firm handshake. It is speaking up, right? Making your voice heard. Um, when I, you know, interview, for instance, young people here, they are showing me respect by sort of looking away, not giving me a firm handshake, right? Being a little soft-spoken, and that is a sign of respect uh, in their culture. However, when it comes to being, you know, impactful in the boardroom, they need to act differently, right? And that's something that's, that's learned over time. Uh, so I do see something that's different uh, in many African countries. Um, in terms of, of my journey, uh, not just in BCG, but just in my leadership journey in life, I sort of think of it in three phases, and it all has to do with, with mentorship. So when I, was, when I was younger, I first joined the corporate world. I didn't value mentorship. I thought I could sort of do it on my own. I didn't tap into the women's networks, the black networks, these yeah. things. And I, and I did okay back then, but I could have been doing much better. In the second phase of my journey, and I changed careers three times, right? So my second career, I was working at a company that had uh, really great um, black groups, really great women's groups within the company. So I sort of just tapped into tons of mentorship, and it wasn't even, you know, what you would normally experience in real life, because usually you need to find your own mentors and things. So this is just something that was given to me. And I think as I transitioned into my third career in consulting, I recognize the power of that mentorship, not just from the black community and the women's community, but from, from everyone, right? So I feel, you know, at BCG, I have a lot of support from all of the leadership there, and that has helped me immensely in my career. So, you know, maybe it's something, it's, it's not really something specific to being a woman, but this was a big unlock for me and understanding for me uh, as I went along in my journey. Mm. It's, it's quite interesting, Jackie, because as, as I listen to these very good examples, the, the question that percolates then comes to the surface is, is culture enabling or does culture get in the way? And that's not a question I'm going to put to you, but it is a question that I do want us to reflect on. And whether there's a middle ground where there isn't a complete trade-off of um, advancement at the cost of culture um, and whether there is an integration of culture. And I'm hoping, time permitting, that we can get to that. One of the things, though, that I, I do want to talk about is leading in tough times. And boy, have we all come out of tough times with the pandemic and a range of other crises, including a climate crisis. Um, just here in South Africa, we know our own challenges of unemployment, of poverty, um, of um, electricity and energy. 
lots of crises, um, we are crisis rich, if I can speak about it like that. What I do want to get to, and Nolita, I want to come back to you on this one, is the experience of leading through tough times as a woman. Um, I look at the industry that you are such a prominent player in right now, the mining industry, which we know because it's part of the extractive industry um, in the context of the climate crisis has always been perceived as part of creating the problem that we are in now. And here you are at the helm of one of the biggest mining companies, and you are now re-engaging with the world as everybody is calling for a low-carbon economy. What is that experience like? What are the lessons that you're learning about turning a ship during tough times, changing direction at difficult times in the world? And do you think that being a woman enables that, or do you think that it stands in the way of you leading and making the changes that you want to see? That's a very multifaceted uh, question that you're asking, Deno Zippo, but let me attempt to, to deal with it. Firstly, leading during tough times, whether you're a woman or you're a man, it's about your own character and your leadership style. And I often talk and I've spoken about this also in, in my book, around the fact that when you come into a leadership position, even more so as a woman, you need to be authentic mm. and bring your true self to the role. And I talk about the five pairs of shoes that right. I bring with me because that really symbolizes the fact that for different situations, you need different types of leadership. And, and for me, from my perspective, leadership is situational. And during tough times, you've got to read the signs uh, like everybody else is reading the signs, but more importantly, also realize that you are not in the storm alone. Yeah, within the storm with a team, so to speak. So it's important that you bring in the best people around you, the best minds around the, the challenge, so that they can help you fix or deal with the situation. And so for me, the issue around how you navigate yourself through a challenging time, it's about one, what kind of culture you create in that organization and the environment to say when we are faced with difficult situations, where do we stand when it comes to values, when it comes to the purpose of the organization, and also more importantly, making sure that each voice around the table has an opportunity to state and give a sense of how we can resolve the situation. Because then collectively, we have the solutions rather than saying one person has got the solution. So for me, in the industry and also the various sectors I've been in, I'm thinking even uh, in the oil and gas period, situation 2008, we had the economic crisis, and yeah. which was really a global crisis. And uh, we saw prices of commodities that we never thought we would ever see very low. And the point was around how do you navigate out of that as a collective, as a sector and an industry. Currently, we've just come out of a pandemic, global pandemic, uh, which is COVID, uh, all of us. Uh, including South Africa. But when that happens, reading the signs and saying, so what does this mean 
in our new reality, not only as South Africa, but also as Africa, because now the solutions that we may have had from 2008 are not the same solutions that are going to help us right. in this particular period. So as, as you're speaking, I'm hearing you talk about inclusion. I'm hearing you talk about collaboration. I'm hearing you talking about listening to other voices, uh, tuning in to stakeholders, tuning into the community. It sounds like the archetype of what the leader in the boardroom looks like has changed because that wasn't the kind of leader that, uh, go, you know, if you went a few decades back and you went to any business school, any MBA program, and we talk about leadership, this idea that leadership is situational, that it's about culture, it's about being inclusive, it is about collaboration, it's about trust, it's about relationships, wasn't the way we've understood leadership. Do you get a sense that the world is just a little bit more accommodating of different types of leadership postures and archetypes, and that's why, as a woman, you are able to operate in that space as effectively as you do? I, I believe that over a period to build a toolbox and toolkits of leadership. Yeah. So that's why I'm talking about situational leadership because when the situation requires for you to be more assertive and firm, then you bring in the toolkit that you need for you to be more firm and assertive. When the situation requires you to be more collaborative and listen to other voices, you bring that with you. So every experience along the way that you have, that I have collected over the decades, then comes to the fore and based on the situation and the challenge at hand, then you decide and work through how best we resolve this based on the toolkits that we have. So in some respects, yeah. it's very much around what experience have you got and what experience do others bring to the table and how do you make sure that you leverage off those particular experiences? And I must say to your question around has this changed or evolved over the years, I believe to a certain extent that has changed where in the corporate CEOs, chairpersons have come to realize that just because we're having the position doesn't mean that we have all the answers. I love that. Just because you have the position, it doesn't mean you have all the answers. Jackie, you're no stranger to leading in tough times. Um, the pandemic, but also you've led through the financial crisis. Um, and so my question to you is, what tools, and you know, Nolita speaks about a toolkit. She talks about a toolkit that you build over time. What does your toolkit look like um, that when you think about um, the tools in there, you can identify these as tools that I picked up during the toughest of moments that you still use even today. Yeah. And I'll tell another story with my answer. And actually, I, I learned this before I was really a leader. I learned this when looking at how others led uh, through a crisis. So, you know, in 2008, with the financial crisis, I was working at Lehman Brothers, right? So I was working at, I was an investment banker at one of the massive banks that failed. Um, and I remember on a, on a Sunday night, we were talking as a team like, wow, it's, it's over. We really failed. And we still needed to go into the office on Monday and deal with this. So this was a, this was a very serious crisis uh, for the company and for us as individuals. And if I think about, if I look at how some of the leaders dealt with that, I remember two things, right? I remember some senior leaders 
they were upset. They were angry, and that's all they cared about was themselves, their own anger. They were smashing their 20-year service awards, etc. Obviously not great, right? And I, and I think about other leaders. The leader on my team, you know, said, you know what, we don't know what's going to happen to Lehman Brothers. Maybe we're going to have a buyer. Maybe we won't. You know what, heads down, work hard, produce more, and, you know, if we have a buyer, at least hopefully our team will be saved. They'll see our value, right? And I saw that, which I also didn't think was healthy. Mm-hmm. And what was missing in all of these interactions was a, a focus on the individuals, right? It can't just be about you. It can't just be about the firm, but everybody, every individual is going through a crisis, right? Mm-hmm. And what was missing is if you, if you actually look at what happened, right? People actually went on and worked in industries that made them happier. They reflected on life. You know, in most cases, they were actually better off. Um, these are skilled people who could have done lots of things, but but no one helped us to, to think through that, to realize that. And I think in a time of crisis, so again, what this taught me now, just generally in my leadership, my leadership is about focusing on individuals, what makes them happy, even if sometimes that means reassessing, why are you here? What are the strengths you bring to the table, etc.? So that even in times of crisis, right, you are grounded in, you know, your individual strengths and again, what, what, why you're there at the company. So I think that that's something that's very much a foundation of my leadership that I learned during that crisis in 2008. Sure, not losing sight of the individual. And maybe, Jackie, let me stay with you because I think... You know, one of the part elements of the answer that we're looking for, if we go back to our exam question, which is, can we change this 20% barrier of women in the in the boardroom, is how do we make transformation everybody's business? How do we make it everybody's job? And if if we look at the expectation from stakeholders, the expectation is that the representation that we see on board, so the more we have women, the more we have black women on boards, that should directly translate to progress or better outcomes in, you know, equity, belonging, inclusion, diversity, and so on and so forth. And, and my question to you is, how do you ensure that that doesn't become a mandate that just sits on your shoulders as the black woman on the board or the black woman on the leadership team and that it actually permeates and becomes everybody's KPI that we actually all need to deliver on this? Yeah. And maybe I'll, I'll talk about two things here. And the, the first is that I personally, I do think it's really important to have women, people of color, in leadership. I think right. that it's really important for people to have um, these role models. And I think from a personal perspective, I do think that we, as women and people of color in leadership, we do have a big part of that responsibility because only I know, you know, as a, as a mother coming back from maternity leave, going into a tough business, only I know what that means and what I need in that situation to be successful. So it's really important for me to, to speak up and tell people what I need and not expect them to just know, right? Because that's my journey. Uh, even men, you know, men at a company with, with kids and things, they understand that, but they don't understand my journey as a woman and as a mother. So I do think a big onus is on us to stand mm-hmm. up. And when we speak out about what we need in leadership, it makes it easier for the people who come after us, right, to follow in our footsteps and not have to kind of break down those walls um, by themselves. Um, I think one other thing I'll talk about in terms of DE&I and making it sustainable, you know, we often focus on um, recruiting, getting people in the door, getting a woman in the door, getting, you know, people of color in the door, and, and, you know, that's it, right? We got 
50% women hires, you know, we've done it. We haven't done it, right? That's the first part of the journey. I think often we need to focus more on retention, right? right. So at BCG, we have, for instance, you know, people of color group, a women's group where we, yes, it, it is just us in these groups where we're talking about, again, what do we need from each other, but also what do we need uh, from, the rest of the, from the rest of the firm, right? So that's a way to, to speak out um, and make sure that everybody's aware of what we need to, uh, to mm. be successful. Nolita, I want to toss the question I had for you because I think I'd like to follow on on what um, Jackie has said, and that is, how do we ensure that the environment is changing at the pace of representation so that we don't make the mistake of bringing women women of color into the organization, but the culture remains um, as a white male archetype or, you know, the way things are done around here um, works against retention, so you're able to get them through the door, but keeping them becomes a challenge because this place doesn't feel like a place where I can grow, where I can collaborate, where I, I can make progress. So how do we make, how do we ensure that the organization also does the work in parallel to actually opening the door and bringing uh, women of color in? Yeah, so definitely you, the, the issue is around changing the culture yeah. of the organization as well as the representation. So when we talk about diversity and inclusion as well as equity, we are talking about the holistic approach because we've got to deal with the systems and the symbols that are represented in that organization, which eventually form the culture of that organization. If the systems and symbols are about to Jackie's point, that it's so male-dominated that people don't even think about parental leave and the fact that we've got working mothers in the environment and call for meetings at all sorts of strange hours that are not suitable for parents. Um, those are some of the symbolic things you can look at, but the systems and policies and processes that we have to change that look at the culture of the organization through a lens of gender, of race, and any other diversity dimension that we have in, 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 in the organization is important. Because then that is what will keep people within the organization. That's what will attract people to your organization. That is what will retain people within your organization. Some of those processes are about talent management. Even the organization, it's clear that there's a talent management process that everybody knows about. There's visibility and transparency in how people get promoted, in how people get to access opportunities, in how people even get to be included in conversations. Then that also contributes towards people feeling that this is the kind of environment that I can personally thrive in that I can be able to live to my fullest potential because it enables me to be successful in this environment. In South Africa, we've got an added benefit. I always say to people, I'm a beneficiary of employment equity and affirmative action and black economic empowerment all in one because were it not for that enabling legislation that was put in place in our country in the early 90s, 
I don't believe myself and others would be sitting where we are sitting today. So you need all the different approaches, your, your legislative regulatory framework, which helps you to bring in the people, the culture part, which is at the core of who you are as an organization, and also the value system that you are going to develop for the organization so that, lastly, you are able to attract and retain and develop the talent that you need for succession so that then when an opportunity comes up or a vacancy comes up that needs to be filled in, you are not scrambling. You've got the talent pipeline because you've looked and worked through that talent pipeline in the organization and over and above that you ha can be able to attract people from outside because you've created the ecosystem yeah. that actually talks to each other in enabling talent to flourish and also to be successful. So representation on its own is not enough. It is an ecosystem to borrow some of your language. Now, as we begin to wrap, um, I think it would be a miss, Jackie, for us to end off this conversation without acknowledging some of the own goals that women might be scoring against themselves and some of the own internal work that women need to do in order for themselves to be part of breaking this barrier of representation, of having voice, of having um, influence in the boardroom as well. Are we consciously engaging with that um, as women? And do we know what some of those things are that require our attention and for us to actually work on them? Yep, so I think... In my experience in groups, you know, of women and people of color, you know, there are all of these external factors that we've talked about, but we don't always focus on the internal factors. So sometimes, you know, if I'm a woman and I'm the only woman in the boardroom, I might feel a certain way. You know, I don't feel as comfortable. I don't feel that people can relate to me. And sometimes you feel the same way as a, as a person of color. If you're the only person there, it can be intimidating, right? So we... Um, you know, even in the groups at BCG, we, we focus a lot on things like training on imposter syndrome and finding your voice because I think it's very powerful when we get in a group and we realize, you know what, it's not just me. You know, we all have these feelings sometimes and, you know, you can't overcome them, get rid of them unless you, you know, you sort of face them head on. And I guess, again, understanding that everybody faces these same challenges is, is powerful. Um, so I think, again, being responsible for overcoming um, some of the things internally that are also holding you back is, is just as important as addressing some of the external things that we also talked about today. The internal is just as important as the external. A final question um, to you, Nolita, is it's hard to miss that you stand out as one of the women of many firsts in a democratic South Africa. You have the first uh, woman president of the Black Management Forum, the first woman uh, president of the Minerals Council of South Africa, and I'm sure I'm missing many firsts uh, in, in that list. Do you have a sense of responsibility for leaving a legacy um, for the women that will come after you? And if you do, what is your intention around that and how have you engaged with that invitation about what happens once Nolita has gone? So we were, and I am part of the firstborn generation of women who came into corporate South Africa and other areas. And I claim that space because it's also a space of privilege as much as it's a space of responsibility. 
and uh, what has made it easier for me to deal with and manage over the years has been to borrow from my own cultural, social tradition. A firstborn daughter in any family is called Umafungwashe, the one whose name we swear on. And you find that, you know, that's the person that the family would look up to, engage with. If someone is going to get married, they go and say, go us and so and so. If someone needs to make a particular life-impacting decision, they say, go talk to and so and so. So as Umafungwashe, you accept that there's a responsibility to being that firstborn. And that responsibility is to help the family move forward. It's to open doors for others. It's to be the voice of those who are not there. Because as women in the African culture, there are even spaces that we are not allowed to go to because the men are the only ones who go there and the women, only the daughters of the family go there. But as Umafungwashe at home, I'm allowed to go. So when I'm there, I know I'm representing my mother, I'm representing my aunts and other women who are not meant to be there and therefore always wanting to make sure that I represent them well as much as is possible. So even in the corporate spaces and environments that one has found themselves in, the issue of always asking the question, where are the people who look like me, who sound like me, who talk like me, uh, the women, the black people, where are the young people in any conversation, in any process, in any policy has been what for me I consider to be my legacy because I may not know everybody, but I may be sitting in a position where I can influence and shape policy and change processes that then will open doors for others that I don't even know because that's how I benefited from the system. So you've taken us back and also answered one of the questions we'd left parked, which is, is there a world where advancing in the boardroom and culture coexist? And what I'm hearing you say is yes, yes, and yes. And it's one of the ways in which you're living that. I do want to thank you very much, uh, Nolita and Jackie, for your time, for joining us on Backstage Pass. Thank you very much. We've appreciated your inputs and your insights. And of course, if you are listening to us, uh, we do hope that you're going to continue to follow the podcast wherever you may be accessing it and looking out for more conversations with South African and African leaders as we engage with some of the biggest issues that are top of mind for them. My name is Nozi Poshabalala, and it's been an absolute pleasure hosting this conversation. Thank you.